The long green season of Pentecost began last Sunday, but I want to talk about it for just a moment. The revised common lectionary, which we use along with most mainline Protestant churches and the Roman Catholic Church, gives us two options for the lessons from the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament, in this season of ordinary time. We could read the semi-continuous lessons. In year A, they come from Genesis and uh, Exodus and uh, the early history. In year B, they come from the time of the kings. And this year in year C, they come from the time of the prophets. Or we can read the ones that go with the gospel, the gospel-related series, which is what we're reading uh, here this year, okay? And so, uh, though today, the story we heard appears in both this strain over here and the one we read, <laughs> the story of Elijah and the healing, uh, raising of the son of the widow of Zarephath. Though the one we read this morning is the shorter version, just kind of the end of the story. So I'm going to bring you up to speed because I know you'd want that. So our lesson today is the story of the prophet Elijah and the widow of Zarephath. First Kings begins with the death of King David, though it takes a couple of chapters and a bit of finagling to get us there. And the coming to power and the reign of King Solomon. After Solomon's death, the kingdom is divided north and south, Israel and Judah. And we have in each kingdom a series of kings, many with unpronounceable names. Throughout the book of Kings, we read about one king or another. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And after a number of chapters, we get to Omri, who also did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Then it tells us, Omri slept with his ancestors and was buried in Samaria. His son Ahab succeeded him. Of Ahab, we are told... He did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. And if that wasn't enough, he took as his wife, anybody know? Jezebel, the daughter of King Ethbal of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. If we were in the synagogue, they'd probably all go, <laughs> This is a sad time for the people of God. The once proud kingdom of David has been divided and neither Israel nor Judah has had rulers of the statue, stature of David and Solomon. The lesson of the version of history put forth in the book of Kings is that God judges leaders not by popular measures of success but by their faithfulness to divine will. Faith and obedience count as much as and even more than social, economic, and political factors. And the kings of Judah and Israel did not score well in the realms of faith and obedience. Also, in the ancient Near East, good kings, because of their alliances with the nation's gods, were able to provide water for their people. Water was life, and still is, if Throughout the Hebrew scriptures, we hear of kings and peoples falling away from the worship of Yahweh to worship Baal. 
Baal, the Canaanite god of life, was the storm god, the bringer of rain. Even in times of shortage, when we are forced to conserve water, we haven't a clue about how life must have been for the people of Israel, living in fear that their crops would fail and death would be upon them. Faithfulness to the unseen Yahweh would have been difficult at best, probably almost impossible when neighbors are making offerings to Baal and pressuring others to do the same. Elijah comes on the scene abruptly and declares that Yahweh is sending a drought. There will be neither dew nor rain except by Yahweh's word. We can all almost imagine the reaction of Ahab and Jezebel, the worshippers of Baal, to such a pronouncement. Elijah is, to put it mildly, in trouble! First, God instructs Elijah to flee across the Jordan to the Wadi Cherith, where he is to drink from the Wadi, and at the Lord's command is fed by ravens. Then, because there has been no rain, the water in the Wadi dries up, and Elijah is ordered to go to Zarephath. See, I finally got there. I hope you're impressed. Elijah is ordered to go to Zarephath, where he meets the widow gathering sticks. The widow, a Gentile, a foreigner, a worshiper of Baal, stands in stark contrast to the other woman, a Gentile, a foreigner, a worshiper of Baal, the dreaded Jezebel. The widow, in a land devastated by drought, one of the neediest of her society, is the one who is to feed Elijah. She who has such scarce means is to be instrumental in God's plan to provide for others. In sharing the little that she has, there is enough. And then her child becomes ill and dies. All her inbred distrust of the stranger comes out. Elijah's first instinct might have been to flee, but surprising for his time, he sticks around. He prays and stretches his body over the child. That's a clue here, I think, that we're dealing with a very old story. Three times he stretches his body over the child. The boy is miraculously revived, proving that Elijah's God, the God of Israel, is truly the Lord of life, for even one who was dead could be brought to life again. The story of the he Jesus healing the son of the widow of Nain is an echo of the Elijah story. Throughout the Christian scriptures, Elijah is seen as the forerunner of Jesus. Elijah's ministry is the model for the ministry of Jesus. In the gospel story, we hear these echoes. The city gate, the plight of the widow, the son who has died, the miraculous resurrection and the resuscitation, sorry, resurrection comes later in the story, as you know, resuscitation and the return of the son to his mother. And yet here, as in other places in the Christian scriptures, Jesus surpasses Elijah. Jesus is more than a prophet of God. Elijah has been the beneficiary of God's miraculous provision of food 
and proclaims that God will sustain the hungry. Jesus himself provides food for the multitude when he feeds the 5,000 and indeed continues to provide us week by week with holy food and drink that sustains us in our lives as Christians. In today's story, Elijah appeals to God to revive the widow's son, but Jesus himself commands the dead to rise again. Elijah implores God to revive the boy. Jesus represents the very power of God to grant and sustain life, and his own resurrection will be the ultimate testimony to the triumph of God over death. So what's the take-home message here for us? Can these stories, which seem more like a fairy tale or myth, have anything realistic to offer us today? Are they only here to nourish our imaginations? When someone I love is sick or has died, do I need to seek out a holy person to intercede with God so that God can magically fix things? These stories were repeated by the people of God to remind us that when God enters our world, into our lives, things change. Our modern translation has the people of Nain saying, God has looked favorably on his people. And an older translation would have said, God has visited his people. Visiting implies a much different act than looking. I can see someone from a great distance, but to visit them, I have to be up close and personal. As Christians, we can be people of hope because God is present with us at every moment in our lives. Even when we cannot see or feel that presence, it is there, close to us, visiting us, waiting for us to open ourselves to it. Amen. Thank you.